seriously popular. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Lucy Letby is accused of the murder of seven babies and the attempted murder of ten others. While she was working on the neonatal unit at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Letby denies all of the charges over the incidents. Lucy Letby was the only person working on the night shift. It was alleged in court that their mother was apparently told by Miss Letby, trust me, I'm a nurse. This is a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It involves the most shocking of allegations, the alleged murders and attempted murders of tiny, premature babies at the hands of a neonatal nurse whose very job it was to look after them. Lucy Letby is on trial at Manchester Crown Court, accused of killing seven infants and injuring ten more at the Countess of Chester Hospital in Cheshire. In total, there are 22 charges, all of which she denies. I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for the Mail, I will be in court to report on the case as it develops. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast journalist. Every week on this podcast, we'll examine what's happened and bring you the details behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby. The case against Lucy Letby is that she murdered or tried to kill 17 babies while she was working as a neonatal nurse at the Countess of Chester Hospital in the northwest of England. She denies the charges. The babies in this trial are not being named for legal reasons, and the identities of their families are also being protected. They're known only as babies A to Q. Seven of the babies died. Ten survived. Each one of these babies was or is someone's son or daughter. And the mums, dads and families of every baby are present in court, listening to every detail of how their child was allegedly killed or harmed. We'll be bringing you that detail as the jury is hearing it from the prosecution and defence. We're getting behind the headlines to explain far more than the news reports you'll be reading, watching and listening to. And the importance of a fair trial is paramount, so we won't be getting into anything in this podcast that the jury have not been told, because they are the 12 people who have to decide the outcome of this case. Today in this episode we're focusing on the 11th baby in the case, the first of twin boys who the prosecution say Lucy Letby tried to murder at pretty much the same time. Welcome to episode 17, Baby L. 
So, Liz, in the last episode, we outlined what the prosecution say happened to baby Jay. Now, she was a baby girl who they say survived being smothered by Lucy Letby in November 2015. We're actually jumping five months ahead today to April 2016 to focus on two brothers, twin boys, who Lucy Letby is accused of attempting to murder. Yeah, that's right, Caroline. And the reason we're jumping ahead is the prosecution are not yet outlining what they say happened to baby Kay, who is the next baby on the indictment. She was a very premature baby girl who Lucy Letby allegedly tried to kill in February 2016. So that's exactly seven years ago. They'll be returning to baby Kay in the coming weeks. And the jury was only told the delay in hearing her case was for good reason. So the jury has been hearing instead about babies L and M, who were allegedly attacked at around the same time during a day shift on April the 9th, 2016. We're going to split the episode in two so we can explain what the court was told happened to each baby. So this week we'll cover the evidence the jury have heard about baby L and next week we will hear about his brother, baby M. Well, baby L was the eldest twin boy born seven weeks early by planned caesarean section at the Countess of Chester Hospital in April 2016. The boy's mother had a normal pregnancy until the end of March when she started to feel poorly. She was admitted to hospital after a scan showed baby L was not growing properly. In a statement, her mother told the court about the run-up to the boy's birth. Her words have been voiced by an actor. It was a routine pregnancy and I had no health issues until March 2016 when I began to feel unwell and had to go for a scan. On that day, the doctors said to me and my husband that I was not well and needed to be admitted straight away. We were both surprised and shocked. I stayed for 15 or 17 days. They asked if I wanted a natural birth or a C-section. I asked the nurses when they were going to do the operation and they said that they had looked through my file and were worried, so it'd be early the next morning at 9am. When I got to theatre, two nurses from the neonatal unit were also there. Lucy and Laura. Laura introduced herself and Lucy and said they were there to take the babies into their care if they were poorly. The C-section was fine and the boys were delivered. They were 33 weeks old and both weighed three pounds. The doctors said they were very healthy and very nice. They asked if I wanted a picture and put them in my arms and I had a picture taken. Her husband also gave police a statement about what he remembered about the birth. His words have also been voiced by an actor. My wife had a C-section. I was with her when they were born and got to see them straight away. The doctors said they were very healthy boys. They were taken to the neonatal unit by Lucy and Laura and my wife was taken to a ward upstairs. I was able to go down to the unit a couple of hours later. I can't remember who was looking after them when I went, but both were still fine in nursery one. So the boys were born and were considered to be in a good condition. And Liz, the court heard that Lucy Letby and another neonatal nurse called Laura Eagles were both present at the birth. And because the twins were small, they were immediately taken to the neonatal unit. And in fact, it was Lucy Letby who admitted them into the intensive care room around 20 minutes after they were born. But shortly afterwards, tests revealed that the levels of sugar in baby L's blood was low. Yes, and jurors were told that it's quite normal for small, premature babies to have problems with their blood sugar. They were also shown medical records written by Lucy Letby, which noted that she was asked to set up a drip of glucose, which is a type of sugar water medicine, to help boost the sugar in his blood an hour after his birth. And this is crucial, Liz, because it's one of these bags of glucose that the prosecution say Lucy Letby poisoned with insulin. 
Yeah, that's right, Caroline. And we should point out here that insulin is a hormone or drug which is used to lower the amount of sugar in the blood. In other words, it does the opposite of a glucose drip. So Lucy Letby finished her day shift that evening and by then jurors were told the glucose drip appeared to be doing its job because baby Elle's blood sugar had normalised. Lucy Letby was not due to work the following day, which was a Saturday, but the court heard she volunteered to do an extra shift because the unit was busy. Yes, and jurors were told that a few days earlier, Lucy Letby had moved into a new house, close to the hospital, and in text to colleagues she said she had volunteered to work for the extra pennies. At the time, the neonatal unit also had some staffing issues and was pretty full, with 15 babies being cared for across the four nurseries. So Lucy Letby came into work on the following day at just before 7.30 in the morning. Now this was April the 9th and this was her fourth day shift in a row. Now she wasn't the designated nurse for baby L. In fact, records show nurse Mary Griffith was looking after him and his brother in nursery one. Lucy Letby had responsibility for two sick babies in the same room. And within hours the jury was told the sugar levels in baby L's blood began to fall dangerously low. Nurse Griffith asked a doctor, Tony Uko, to come and see him, and the doctor decided to up the amount and rate of glucose baby L was receiving via the drip. The jury was shown charts which showed Lucy Letby and Nurse Griffith co-signing for this medication, which is the rule for administering drugs to babies having neonatal care. And at around 12.30pm, the court heard Nurse Griffith went on a break. And less than half an hour later, at around 12.53pm, Lucy Letby began messaging her mother, Susan Letby, about the Grand National, the famous horse race which was due to be run later that day. The WhatsApps have been voiced by actors, and we'll also be sharing pictures of them on our Twitter feed, at Lucy Letby Trial. Is Dad betting on Grand National? If so, can he see which are greys and put a bet on for me, please? Kiss. Already gone. Doing Union East and Balakasey, which are greys and rule the world for take that. Two pound each way on each. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Lucy Letby's father, John, sent her the odds for the horses. And then about 45 minutes later, at a quarter to two, Lucy Letby also started WhatsApping four friends on a group chat about a housewarming party she was planning. In the messages, which have been voiced by actors, she said, Sorry guys, mad busy four days in work. You can come to mine if you want to, just need to unpack first. Haven't got a spare bed yet though, so can't stay unfortunately. Looking forward to a catch-up. Kiss. Got Magnum Prosecco and vodka, whoop. No disco ball, but sure we can manage. Kiss. Now, soon afterwards, Nurse Griffith came back from her break and continued to monitor the twins. She told the court that she was taking hourly heel prick blood tests from baby L. But even though he was being given extra glucose via the drip, the results showed the sugar in his blood falling even further. Nurse Griffiths was asked what she thought about the readings and told the court, With Prems you never know which way it's going to go, but it was quite a shock. I didn't expect it to have fallen. So at around half past three that afternoon, doctors decided to increase the amount of glucose being given to baby L even further. A larger sample of his blood was also taken and sent off to a lab in Liverpool for specialist testing. 
Now, Liz, this blood sample is central to the prosecution case, and I know we're going to come back and explain why later on in this episode. Yes, and in the meantime, the court heard, Nurse Griffith and Lucy Letby were in the middle of putting together a new bag of more concentrated glucose for baby L's drip when they were suddenly forced to stop what they were doing. This was because his brother's monitor alarm suddenly sounded. Baby M had collapsed and stopped breathing. We'll hear much more about what the prosecution say happened to baby M when we deal with his case next week. Yes, that's right, we will. But um, Nurse Griffith did tell jurors about her memories of the incident. Lucy Letby was with me, she said. Baby M's alarm went and she went to check him. She said, we need help over here. And Belinda Williamson was in the nursery and she said, you go and sort the other twin and I will make sure this is finished and goes up. She took over the care of baby L at that point. And you might remember back in episode 8 when we outlined the case of baby F, who's the other baby boy Lucy Letby is accused of poisoning with insulin. Jurors were told then about the insulin and where it was stored on the unit. Yes, and again last week, Nurse Williamson reminded them that the drug was kept in a locked fridge on the unit. But she admitted stocks of the drug were not routinely checked and any of the registered nurses on the ward had access to the keys during their shift. Jurors have been shown a photograph of this fridge previously, so we'll share this on our Twitter feed, at Lucy Letby Trial. So after the sudden collapse of baby M, Lucy Letby went back to looking after her two babies, and just before half past five, her mother texted to tell her the good news, that her horse, Rule the World, had come in and she'd won £135 on the Grand National. Still planning her party, Lucy Letby texted a friend, Amy Turner. Again, the messages, which start with Lucy Letby, have been read by actors. Unpacking party sounds good to me, with my flavoured vodka, haha. Just won the Grand National, £135, horse emoji. Hey, hey, well done. Throughout the rest of the shift, Baby L's sugar levels continued to be monitored. But despite increases in the amount and rate of glucose he was being given via the drip, it remained persistently low, the jury was told. And it's the prosecution case that this was because, at some point during this shift, Lucy Letby injected insulin into his glucose drip to try to kill him. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. So Lucy Letby went home and had a few days off. And the following day, on April the 10th, another doctor who we can't name took over baby Elle's care. And it was this doctor whose presence in court last week caused a moment of drama in the trial, Liz. So what happened? So this doctor can't be named for legal reasons. And he gave evidence from behind a screen. But as soon as he gave his name to the court, Lucy Letby became tearful and stood up from her seat. She appeared to try to leave the glass panel dock via the doors which leads to the cells. The trial judge, Mr Justice Goss, watched the drama unfold and asked Lucy Letby's solicitor to just see what the problem is. She had a hushed conversation with the dock officer and her solicitor before composing herself, although she did continue to wipe her eyes with a tissue as the doctor started to give his evidence. The jury was not given an explanation for her reaction and the doctor was allowed to continue with his evidence. He explained why low blood sugar can be so dangerous for babies. Low glucose can cause illnesses, seizures and damage, he said. It can cause organ damage and brain injury. And during his shift, the jury heard, baby L's blood sugar finally returned to normal and he was eventually discharged from hospital around a month later. So Liz, we need to go back to that blood sample taken from baby L, which was sent to the lab in Liverpool to be tested. It was Dr John Gibbs who gave evidence in court about this blood sample. He said the results of the test were not received until April the 14th, which is five days after it was sent off. But when they arrived, Dr Gibbs said his more junior colleagues entered them into baby L's notes without realising their significance. That's right, Dr Gibbs said they were significant because the results showed it wasn't baby L's natural insulin, it was injected insulin that he had in his blood. Baby L had been given insulin he should not have been given, Dr Gibbs said. Dr Gibbs told the court baby L had not been prescribed insulin by anyone and that it would have been totally inappropriate and dangerous to give the drug, which, remember, is used to lower sugar in the blood to any patient like baby L, who already had very low blood sugar levels. And like in the case of baby F, back in episode 8, the nurses on duty, so that's Nurse Griffith, Nurse Williamson and Nurse Amy Davies, were all asked, on oath, whether they could possibly have administered insulin to baby L. No, they all replied. So that's what the prosecution say happened to baby L. Liz, the defence case is that Lucy Letby did not harm him. That's right, Caroline. Lucy Letby denies attempting to murder baby L. And we've not heard much yet from Ben Myers KC, Lucy Letby's barrister on this baby. We'll get more from him next week. 
but he has already suggested to at least one of the doctors who gave evidence that there was nothing surprising about such a preterm, low-weight baby like Baby L having low blood sugar, as it is common in such neonates. Mr Myers has also previously said there was nothing in fact to show that Lucy Letby poisoned Baby L with insulin and reiterated her position that she did not try to harm or kill Baby L. So this week, Caroline, I'm delighted to say we've got a fantastic guest to talk about the criminal justice system and its portrayal in the media. Dr Ian Cummins is a senior lecturer in policing and social policy at the University of Salford. Thank you for coming on, Ian. It's great to have you. My pleasure. Thanks very much for the invitation. Can you take us back and remind us of some of those key moments of drama on the TV that have influenced how we might view policing today? In 1976, that marked the end of Dixon and Dot Green. It ran for 21 years and it was seen as representing British policing compared to other areas. So that kind of view of policing by consent, the police officer as representing community values was all embodied in Jack Warner, who was a character actor. So his famous evening all catchphrase was this sort of capturing that view of police's community. It's interesting in the way that that drama became a kind of almost political reference point. So people would talk about, you know, this view of community. And you can see that now in the way in which people then go back and refer to why aren't the police more like they were. But that sort of idealised, if you like, nostalgic view did change, didn't it? You know, in the 70s, for example. In the 70s, I think you see clearly there were crises in the criminal justice system in the 70s in terms of what later turned out to be wrongful convictions and a whole series of cases. You see programmes like The Sweeney, which became hugely successful. John Thor and Dennis Waterman are TV icons, aren't they? The Sweeney is a much more brutal, violent programme from the villains and also the police. So, you know, violence seems to be a legitimate way to capture Romans, etc., etc. And it's all based on this premise that actually the police knew who the bad guys were, but in some ways they were being restricted by the criminal justice system, lefty liberals like me as a probation officer from really going and sorting people out. So I think from there, that leads to a kind of more critical view, because clearly there had always been people who, in criminology and other areas are very critical of the police. So you then see some critical dramas like Newman's Law and Order, which portrays corruption in the Met, and and you get, move on towards a more perhaps realistic drama. But throughout this, there's always been what you might see as nostalgic programmes of policing. So something like Heartbeat. I mean, Heartbeat was so, so popular. I mean, millions of people watched that programme, and I think still do. It's huge. I mean... Um, Is it still on? I think it's on those channels like Dave and, you know, UK Gold or, or whatever, but I think they're still it's still hugely popular. That's a nostalgic view of policing, but it's also a nostalgic view of the 60s. So there is something here about what people watch, why they want to watch it, and then how does that influence policy? And do you think, Ian, that drama can and does influence policy? So last week, Yvette Cooper we're saying that essentially we need more Catherine Carwoods in the police, you know, we need one in every town kind of thing. 
when you've got a prominent MP, influential MP, making comments like that about fictional characters, I wonder whether the public do make those overlaps that are not always realistic. Uh, well, I guess the point is that Yvette Cooper's made that overlap to start with. And clearly that's a rhetorical device, isn't it? To appeal to somebody who you know is very popular and can be seen as representing a, a new approach. But, you know, it's not realistic. It's, we can't base policies on, you know, people on the telly. And Ian, actually, the way that police work's portrayed in drama just isn't very realistic, is it? In dramas, it's much more of a puzzle so that clues are left and you're meant to put them together to come to this conclusion. And, you know, there's a lot of police work which is... Well, mundane. Yeah. Scouring hours and hours of CCTV. When I spoke to the retired police officer, the, one of the points they made was that actually a lot of police work, like a lot of jobs, as you say, Liz, is mundane, it's routine, and it's boring. And I suppose just, you know, bringing it up to date with what we see now on TV, TV drama, true crime is it's all about high tech. It's all about DNA and forensics, isn't it? You can see that in some of the programmes like CSI, for example, there's this focus on forensic, obviously in CSI, focus on forensic, as though that solves everything. Obviously, at the moment, uh, there's a lot of focus in the media about the case of, of Nicola Bully, which is understandable because a lot of the initial coverage was about asking for information if people had seen her. And in that respect, the public play a vital role. But this increasing sort of commentary around the police investigation and this assumption that some members of the public feel they know more than the police, when in fact, actually, we're probably not privy to a lot of the detail of this investigation. So do you think our interest and fascination in crime, whether that's fictional crime in a drama or true crime, almost turns people into sort of amateur sleuths. Armchair detectives, essentially. Because of rolling news, because of the high-profile nature of the story, then people become invested, involved. You know, it's it's not surprising we talk about such a high-profile case. I mean, I think there's clearly then there's a, another step where people go and try and conduct their own in, investigations. I'm not quite sure what they hope to achieve. Well, the point is that most people don't interact with police, with the court system, unless they call for jury service. So, you know, the only information they get about what happens in that situation is often off the telly. There's an American sociologist, Sonic, who described the criminal justice system as hidden. We all know about it, but actually our contact with it is very limited. I mean, I've, I've worked as a probation officer, so I was going to say I've been in prison. Well, I have. I've visited prisons. I've been in police stations. I've been in courts. That's like when we talked to Nazir Afzal about why courts should be potentially streaming cases because it would demystify the whole conversation around courts. But they're hugely important institutions. You know, people have a view. Just as a final point, Ian, from your role at the University of Salford, what is it your students come on your course to do? What is it they want to go and change in the world when they graduate? In terms of policing, the students are looking at uh, going into the police. Of course, they're doing equipment for that, but also working in the criminal justice system where they make a difference, I think. So they want to work with communities, work with local people. And I think they're very interested in the broader social issues that are often lie behind the sorts of cases we've been talking about. Really great to hear from you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much, Ian. Okay, see you soon. 
So that's it for episode 17. A quick word just to say thank you for listening to us so far. In the last four weeks, the podcast has had 300,000 listens, which we're really chuffed about. Because it means this kind of journalism is important to you. So please do share and subscribe. Next week, we'll hear about Baby M, Baby L's twin brother, who Lucy Letby is also accused of attempting to murder. The jury are expected to hear how he collapsed suddenly and needed resuscitating after Lucy Letby allegedly injected air into his bloodstream. I'll be in court to listen to the evidence and you can read my daily reports in the mail and on Mail Plus. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Letby Trial or send us an email at thetrialoflucyletby at gmail.com. See you then. series everything i know about me is back for a brand new season and this time our guest needs no introduction of course you find me darren but here's one anyway hi i'm Gemma collins and this is everything i know about me if you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah... I remember that being really stressful. Everything I know about me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.